Welcome to Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cooks, Hunt, Gather, Cook podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and today I wanted to talk about silence. Silence, being quiet, being in the moment. The reason I want to talk about it is because I have been fishing and foraging and hunting with a great many people this spring, and one of the things that I notice is the incredible attachment people have to their cell phones. Now, this certainly isn't news to you or most people. Probably you are listening to this on a cell phone yourself, and that is not necessarily a bad thing. But the lack of focus, the lack of being there that we see in day-to-day conversations, I mean, how many of us have been sitting across from someone or several someones or even at a dinner party where everyone is constantly whipping out a cell phone and staring at the cell phone and they they drift off. They're not with you anymore. They're just not present. Well, that's just downright rude in a social situation. And it can be actually downright dangerous if you are hunting or fishing or foraging. Let me give you a case in point. I was mushroom hunting with someone the other day, and this person could not get off their phone. They just kept staring at it and looking at it for messages and doing stupid shit like Facebook when they're on the top of a mountain looking for morale mushrooms. And as it happens, there aren't too many dangers when you're looking for morels in the West. But one of them is putting your foot into a burned out stump. And this happens. You know, most of our morels are in burn areas and the trees sometimes burn all the way to the core and even into and underneath the soil surface itself, the roots burn. So what happens is what looks like solid ground really isn't because there's a hole underneath it because it's been burned out. And I can't tell you how many of the times that I put my leg through one of these things and all of a sudden your left leg or your right leg is up to your hip. And, you know, if you're aware of it, it's not that big a deal. But this guy was texting on his cell phone and took a step fell over, cell phone went flying, you know, he could have hit his head. He could have, he could have just been injured. And it's just, it was a stupid thing that didn't have to happen. I've seen people texting while hunting and yeah, you're probably not going to suffer any consequences to it, but it's entirely possible that at the very least you're going to miss the game. You know, I've seen people poking out a response to a text message and ducks have flown right over their head. Or deer have walked underneath their tree stand. Or even worse, if you're out in the West and you're scoping things with a spotting scope or binoculars and sitting on top of a mountain and you're trying to spot a deer or a bear or something that could be a mile, mile and a half away, well, that's just a little black dot. And if you're not aware, looking through your scope and you're sitting down there looking at a glowing screen, well, you're just gonna, you, you could miss your only opportunity for that day. But it's a bit more than that. Something about the electronic world is seductive in a dangerous way. It is, it's bright colors. It's a glowing stream. And what's more, it's it's constant little doses of validation. You count your likes on a post. You look at comments. And by people commenting on your thing, whatever that thing is, it gives you some little dope rush of validation. And it's very, very addictive. And it's very difficult to get away from. I believe there isn't anybody who's not addicted to it. And I used to think that 
those of us over the age of 40 were pretty much immune. But I was just hunting with some people, and there were some people in their 60s constantly on their cell phone, constantly, in a way that was, that I'd never even seen before, even among other hunters. I mean, it's it's not necessarily that they were, you know, super important people. I mean, I'm sure they were important to some extent, but it's not like I was hunting with a senator or hunting with a CEO or something like that. And, and it just was, it was strange. Even while hunting, there were con- the glowing lights constantly, constantly, constantly. And it was just, it just baffled me. But I want to tell you about a different story, a good story, not just somebody endlessly staring at a cell phone and falling into a hole, a fun story, a story about a colleague, a Facebook friend who had helped with a Kickstarter campaign for my next cookbook, which is the venison cookbook called Buck Buck Moose. And he had contributed enough where the reward for that is I would take him out foraging. So he flew out to Northern California and we decided that we were going to go mushroom hunting. It's morel season and the porcini have started and things are just kind of popping right now. And it's a good time to be in the woods. So we went walking around and looking for stuff. And we did some regular foraging. We're looking for fur tips and I showed him some wild ginger and we went looking in vain for some spring porcini. And then we went up to a spot where I knew that we would find some spring porcini when they're ready, but that road is still snowed out. So clearly we were too, we were too early for it. So I'm like, ah, what am I going to do here? Well, I know there happens to be a nice little spot where there are wild onions just down the hill from where I was. So we pile into the truck and we drive down maybe 500 feet in altitude. And I pull over to the area and we go down the trail. And sure enough, the wild onions are there. And they're a little small. They were, they were not quite ready to pick. And so I figured, okay, this is what they look like. You know, we'll come back and pick some later. It wouldn't be, too, it would be too late for him, but you know, he got a chance to see what they were. And then I turned around And there, right next to the truck, was a tiny little morel mushroom. Just a little nub, like the size of the end of your pinky. I was amazed I spotted it at all. And a light bulb went off. I'm like, wow, there were morels this high? I mean, we were were pretty high. We were at about 6,200 feet at the moment. So I said, all right, well, hell, there's there's a spot just downhill that had been burned about a year, two years ago, and it was a controlled burn. So it wasn't a really ferocious burn, but it was a, it was that kind of nice burn where all of the underbrush has been cleaned out, but the trees were still alive. These are the spaces where I like to hunt morels. So we drove downhill and I pulled over and we walked across the street and we started looking. And, you know, maybe two, three minutes into it, my friend had found one. He's like, oh, I found a morel. And you could hear it in his voice, like, I, oh, you know, that, that, that note of success that you can hear in it. Someone who's no matter if they're six years old or 65 or 80 or 90 years old. I mean, you're going to, you know, it's just, it's just something electric about finding an edible mushroom. And so we started looking, you know, I mean, the old saying is that every, every mushroom you find will give you another half an hour of, of mushroom hunting. It's pretty much true with anything, you know, one more fish, you know, one more duck, you know, oh, the tide will change or, oh, maybe the wind will pick up. It's that kind of crazy hopefulness that you that you get when you're out there looking for wild foods. So he found another, 
And then I started to find one and then we found another and another and another and another. And it was, it was <laughs> this is going to be a good day. I mean, I was shocked. I mean, I thought we'd find a couple mushrooms, but it turned out to be a really nice day where I think we found, I don't know, maybe four or five pounds between the two of us. And, and we left, I don't know, two or 300 little teeny ones that weren't big enough to really pick. And it was just a great day. And he looked up at the end of it, you know, finally it was getting late and we were really pretty hungry and we both had a nice big bag of morels each. And, and so, you know, he looked up at me and he had this look in his face like, well, what's going on? He's like, you know something? For the first time that I could remember, not only didn't I not look at my cell phone, but I didn't want to. And it was this great revelatory moment for both of us, really, for him, because he's a very busy guy and he's constantly in demand. And it was this moment where not only did he not care, because, you know, there's a lot of times when if you're a very busy person and you have a constant demands on your time and on your expertise, that you consciously turn off your cell phone or, or look away from it because, you know, you're making a conscious decision. This was a little different He'd forgotten about it. He was in the moment. He was hunting mushrooms. Everything that was him was employed to find these little black mushrooms in a little black burned out area. And it was a childlike joy that was worth any amount of money to see and, and certainly to for him to experience. And it was this, oh, yes, that's why we do this. That's why you're out in the wild, especially if you're a guy like this guy, executive, you know, just stuck in boxes, going to work in a box, working in a cubicle. Everything is artificial. Everything is regimented. And to finally not only consciously let go, because that's that's a good thing too, but to have it just sweep over you like this is just a miracle. And it's a a small miracle, but it's one that is so important to not only the way I live my life, but to what I'm trying to do for anybody who is interested in hunter, angler, gardener, cook, is to to find something like that where you forget about your telephone, you forget about your Facebook page or your Snapchat or whatever it is, and you just be, and you just be in the moment. You know, I've seen it in the middle of picking huckleberries on the on the north coast i see it a lot with mushrooms and the thing with mushrooms that is special is that it can be a very very quiet quiet period you know i i'm titling this podcast enjoy the silence not only because i happen to like the depeche mode song and if you're familiar with that you get extra points but it's just silence is you know the stupid old cliche silence is golden when you're sitting there in a tree stand or fishing or foraging or doing whatever, and you can let nature wash back over you because people are a disturbance in nature. We're loud. We smell. We're constantly talking, talking, talking. And that jabbering creates waves in, in the woods, less so on the water, but certainly in the woods. And everything is aware of your existence. Let me give you a case in point. So I was deer hunting a couple of years ago in the Sierra Nevada. And I had found a spot 
where there had been deer activity, there were scrapes and I'd seen tracks and fresh scat and I hadn't seen any deer, but it was, you know, I was in a pretty good spot to ambush one if a buck should show up. As it happens, it didn't happen, but that's okay. What was interesting though, is after about 15, 20 minutes sitting with my back to a stump, nature forgets about you and it goes back about its own business. So the birds start to chirp in a different way. You start to hear the animals that had frozen and not moved because they heard you coming and they don't like you. They don't know what you're about. You could be something bad. And chances are, if you're a person, you are something bad, especially if it was a deer, right? Because it was deer hunting. That's certainly a bad thing if you're a buck. But you see squirrels, you see chipmunks, you see little micey things. The birds start to land really close to you. And this happened with that mushroom hunting trip that I just told you about, where at some point we're just quietly moving through this burned up forest and you hear that meep, 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 meep. It's, it's this soundtrack to the Sierra Nevada in the springtime. It's this, it's a nuthatch. It's a Sierra nuthatch that just does that. And you always hear it. And he couldn't hear it for the longest time. He's like, I, I can't even pick that sound out. And he finally did, because he finally let go. And it was this, you know, I, it's just this great moment. And we both really only talked to each other in a course of about two hours just to know where we, each other was, you know. And it's kind of the way that animals talk to each other, you know. Lots of birds are saying, hey, I'm over here. Where are you? And the other bird is like, I'm over here. Where are you? I'm over here. Where are you? And, they, you know, they may not say anything else to each other. I don't know how much birds do talk to each other, but I'm sure certain birds have a range of things that they can converse about. But at the very least, especially a pair, are saying, hey, I'm over here. Where are you? All the time. And that's all That's all my friend and I were doing. And it felt good and natural. And when you're on the water, it's a little different because, you know, fish don't necessarily hear you. Now, there is an exception to that. If you're fishing shallow water or a stream with trout, for whatever reason, they can feel you or see your shadow. And small water fishing, noise definitely matters because noise reverberates through the bottom of your boat too. And if you're fishing shallow or small water, if you're playing music or if you're jabbering the whole time, you absolutely will scare fish, especially nervous fish like trout. Less so in the ocean. But here's the other thing. Ocean fishing, you know, especially, you know, you think about it as something inherently passive. You know, you troll or you're fishing bottom fish and the fish are just jumping on your hook or something like that. There is a certain relaxation there to knowing that, sure, a fish is probably going to commit suicide on your hook sooner or later, so you don't necessarily have to be super active. It'll happen, or it won't. And there's for a lot of people, that's good enough, because it got them on the water, and it got them away from the office and whatever. And, and you know, if, they're, if you're lucky, you're out of cell phone range, so you can put your damn cell phone away and actually just enjoy being out on the water. But, and this is a case in point where I was, I was bottom fishing the other day, and you know, so people were happily chatting and there were a few people who were just on their cell phone all the time and, you know, they were catching some fish. It's not like they weren't catching fish. But I do things a little differently. 
part of it is because I'm very good at bottom fishing. I love it. It's one of my favorite things in the world to do is to, is to bounce a bait or a lure off the bottom. And for me, bottom fishing is inherently super constantly active. It's, it's one of the things that, that I love about it is because if you are properly bottom fishing, you're constantly tapping the bottom. You're feeling what the bottom feels like. You're checking to see if the bait is coming up on a pinnacle or dropping in a hole. You're just waiting for that lightning strike of a hit because anything that lives off the bottom is almost certainly an ambush killer. So it's going to live in a rock or a crevice or something and it's going to whip out, hit your bait, and probably try to get back on the rocks. And if you're too slow, you're either going to get stuck in the rocks, you're going to lose your bait, or it's going to cut you off. You know, sharp rocks have cut any number of monofilament lines. And this just sort of happens if you're not aware of it. And people are like, oh, yeah, I lost my bait. That's true. But it was probably a fish that took it. And you were probably a little bit slow on the uptake to try and hook that fish. I This doesn't happen to me that often. I mean, yeah, obviously it happens because nobody's perfect. But I love that quiet awareness. It's sort of, it's almost a zen-like state. And, and you get it when you're in a tree stand too, or if you're waiting for big game you you have to be inherently calm when you do things like that because you know nobody can maintain a state of agitation for more than a few minutes but you have to be aware as well it's it's a very you know i don't really fully understand zen i don't really fully understand shintoism or whatever it is that the ninjas or whoever martial artists do but i get it i kind of get it on an interior level that you have to open yourself up to quiet. And it's not just exterior quiet. It's not just not talking. It's quiet of the mind. And being quiet of mind and trying to get into a position of being quiet of mind is part of what makes being out in nature so valuable to us as a human being. It's one of the few places where you can feel small, where you can feel that you are in the presence of something that is larger and more important than yourself. And you can feel this as a forager just on a mechanical level because nature doesn't care about you or your time. If the berries are going to be ripe tomorrow and you're not there, no one's going to wait for you. If you missed the tide or you missed the run of shad in the American River in Sacramento or you missed that time when all the mushrooms were flushing, you missed it. No one cares. And from a gatherer, or a hunter, or an English perspective, that's a very good way to feel insignificant because taking the kids to school just doesn't matter quite as much, does it? And now I'm not saying that you should neglect your children or anything, but I'm saying that by putting yourself at the mercy is not necessarily the best way to put it, but by putting yourself at the timetable of nature and accepting that you are a, a moat, a small piece of it, and working within that structure, not only will it make you safer because you, you'll, you're aware that you're not the big dog in the woods, even if you are, biologically speaking, if there are no bears or wolves or cats in the, in the woods that you're in, it just makes you a little bit calmer interiorly. It calms your mind, or at least it does me. And, and, and I don't know how to tell you how to do it other than to not necessarily kill your phone. And I don't, and I'm also not saying to not bring your phone 
because there are a great number of reasons to have a cell phone if you're off in the woods or offshore or something like that for safety reasons in case something goes horribly wrong and you have the opportunity to call for help. That is probably the single greatest purpose of a handheld phone that there is. You know, obviously you have to hope you have service, but 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 that's the thing. It's like I have my cell phone with me all the time. Sometimes I'm taking pictures with it, but I almost always have it on airplane mode. And my advice, the one piece of advice I could tell you, to try and get into a state of the now, into a state of the moment, into a state of silence, is to put your phone on airplane mode. It will stop buzzing. It will stop giving you those little dopamine jolts of, oh, somebody liked my post and somebody's commenting on my thing. And, you know, all of that stuff will be there when you come back to life. And we all have to come back to life. It's just, it's how we live. I mean, as much as I talk about what I do, being quiet and in the forest and everything, let's face it, I make my living on the internet. So I face this on a daily basis of being out, quiet, in the moment, or taking care of business in front of a computer screen. So it's not like I'm some, you know, backwoods bearded monk or anything. I live in a world pretty much the same way you guys do in terms of the way I make a living and the terms of the way I interact with human beings. It's just important because as I've said before, and I'll say again, we as human beings are as divorced from nature as our species has ever been. We're almost completely disconnected from what made us the masters of this planet for good or for ill, and in many ways for ill. If we neglect that quiet of the mind and that silence, both in our heads and around us, we do so at our peril. And that's it. That's all I got to say today. I mean, that's I had this thought burning in my head and I'd seen so many examples of people just not willing to let go, people trying to stay tethered when they should be enjoying that rare moment of being in the field, hunting or fishing or foraging, that it just made me sad. And and what made me equally and oppositely happy was that great moment with my friend who was morel mushroom hunting, where he finally forgot about everything else except for what it is that he was doing. And it was the pursuit of wild food. I'm Hank Shaw. This is the Hunt Gather Talk podcast with hunter, angler, gardener, cook. If you're interested in this essay and everything I do about the wild world, check out honest-food.net. That is hunter, angler, gardener, cook. And I will be back in a week or two with another episode of the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you soon. Bye.